All right, everyone, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Uh, my name is Morgan Smith. I am an investigative reporter at the Texas Tribune. On behalf of everyone at the Tribune, I want to welcome you to the 2017 Texas Tribune Festival and to our panel this morning on the uh, ripe response on sexual assault, where we're going to be discussing what college campuses can learn from the uh, Baylor University scandal. Um, I'd also like to say a heartfelt thank you to our uh, distinguished panelists, whom I'll get to introducing in a moment for participating today. Um, we're going to have an hour up here, about 40 minutes of moderated conversation, and the rest we're going to reserve for questions from the audience. Um, and I, I'll just give a gentle reminder that that time is for questions, not speeches, so don't take it personally if I ask you to kind of get to the point is just in the interest of respecting our panelists' time and trying to get to as many questions as possible. Um, so on my left, I have State Representative J.M. Lozano. He is a Republican from Kingsville, and he serves as the chairman of the House Higher Education Committee and has represented his House district in the legislature since 2011. Um, Next, I have uh, Wanda, Wanda Mercer. She oversees academic affairs at the University of Texas system. She previously served as the vice president for student life at Tarleton State University and associate vice president and dean of students at the, at the University of Houston at Clear Lake. Uh, Paula Levine is a, a reporter with ESPN, where she's been since 2008, working primarily for the investigative sports news show Outside the Lines, where she's reported on issues of sexual assault at Baylor and other college campuses. Her book, Violated, which documents the evolution of the Baylor scandal, came out in August. Uh, next, I have Sierra Smith, who is a junior at Baylor University, where she is an advocate for reforming the way Texas colleges and universities handle sexual assault cases. In April, she told Texas lawmakers of her own experience of college sexual assault while testifying in favor of a bill that would require the state's publicly, uh, states, colleges, and universities that receive public funding to mark the transcripts of students suspended or expelled for any reason, including sexual assault, even after they transfer to another school. And finally, we have State Senator Kirk Watson, who is an Austin Democrat and Baylor alum, who filed a package of bills this last session uh, aimed at fighting sexual assault on college's campus, on college campuses. Uh, so I'd like to begin our discussion today with some news that came out yesterday. Uh, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos scrapped a key part of government policy on campus sexual assault, uh, reversing an Obama-era guideline that uh, required colleges to use the lowest standard of proof in deciding whether a student was responsible for a sexual assault. Um, instead, colleges can now use a higher, clear, and convincing evidence standard and another part of this reversal was uh, removing a deadline for completing investigations within 60 days. Um, Paula Levine, I'd like to start with you. As of this moment, can you talk to us a little bit about how the events at Baylor have had, or if they have, had an effect on co how colleges approach sexual assault cases and how, if you feel like this federal level policy shift is going to uh, affect that at all. Sure. Thank you for the question. It's an incredibly timely one. <laughs> uh, before I answer, though, I wanted to thank you and thank the Texas Tribune for having this panel. This is such a, an important topic right now and with everything going on and then with the announcement yesterday that the policies will be changing. 
Um, you know, in terms of whether what's happened at Baylor has had an effect on other colleges, uh, it's one of the things that we address in our book, actually, is that even immediately we noticed uh, that, there, that colleges were taking, some colleges were taking faster action when it came to cases like this. I mean, we talk a lot about incidents involving football and, and athletics. Um, the reason that those get a lot of attention is because they involve prominent people, right? But we like to think that they are sort of a, a bellwether for what's happening throughout the campus. And we noticed um, in light of what happened at Baylor, uh, we saw cases where there were um, other student athletes who were accused of sexual assault, and you saw the universities act much quicker and uh, much more decisively in some of their suspensions. And the example I would give is that there was a, a Minnesota coach who his players were being investigated for sexual assault. And he sent, uh, put out a tweet in support of them and critical of the university. And that got him fired. I don't think he would have had that happen pre-Baylor. Um, you know, I, these stories have been happening for some time. But I think what happened at Baylor was so unprecedented. You saw the ouster of the president and the coach that universities were put on notice. Move to yesterday, and there's a concern that universities can now be like, whew, you know, I'm not on the hook for that anymore. Um, I think that's a valid concern to have, but I also think that despite what the policies are, the pressure from the public and the pressure from the students is not going away. And I've seen a number of universities, even back when Betsy DeVos was talking about doing this, publicly commit to continuing to uphold the standards that they had had previously and that the standards that were required under the 2011 Dear Colleague letter and the 2014 guidance. And for the benefit of students out there, um, it's, it's hopeful that colleges will not see what happened yesterday as a, as a means to back off but will maintain their commitment to doing what's right for, for all parties. Yeah. And Dr. Mercer, um, I know that the UT system, even before a lot of the events at Baylor came to light, had been moving to really look at the issue of, of campus sexual assault and did a, a comprehensive survey. Um, and it's, that's also part of a larger multi-year study on that right. issue. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned from that, and also, you know, give us some insight into whether is how are how is this federal policy shift going to affect uh, UT policy, if at all? Um, the research team on that project is actually grounded here at the University of Texas at Austin in the Institute for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, and they are the uh, experts in this. But what I will say that we learned is that the incidences of all kinds of violence covered under Title IX are uh, about the same at our campuses as they are across the country. Uh, we didn't find the surprising incidences of, of less or hugely greater. It was what we've seen across the country. So that validated some of what we knew. But what we like to talk about is most important about the work we did there is taking what we learned and determining what we need to do and how we need to do things better. So our report about that research is online. Any of you can access it for every individual academic campuses and for uh, all of our health campuses in aggregate. 
and you can see what all the data are. It's all out there. And then you will also learn what we've been doing to support uh, students up till now. And then the last part of the report is what we intend to do as a result of this research. So I invite all of you to go out and look at it. Our chancellor was very clear that he wanted to be completely transparent about what was going on and telling the public what our students said at the risk of criticism, but I think it was worth it for that transparency. Real quickly, to the second part of your question, um, we're co the UT system's committed to this, so um, what we do have to pay, it, we have to follow the law. <coughs> So we, our attorneys will look at what was issued yesterday and how that transpires over the next weeks, and we will figure out <coughs> and ensure that our campuses, what their, their processes are following the law, that they are protecting our students well. But it's hard to say in the specifics what exactly is going to happen. You mentioned a couple of things, and we still don't know how that's going to impact pending cases how that's going to impact cases at the OCR we talked about. So that's yeah. it's really too early to comment too much about the impact of that. And I believe it is unclear at this point whether that policy shift is going to require universities to, you, to follow those standards or if it's simply like we're lowering them but you can have higher standards if you, if you wish. Like. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Ms. Smith, I really want to get your perspective on this too because you've had direct experience for how this, with how this plays out at the campus level. Uh, you brought details of your sexual assault to Baylor administrators right as the national spotlight was on camp hit your campus uh, for an ongoing scandal involving the football players. But tell us a little bit about what happened then, and then you know how you feel the, you know, how this federal policy might affect things. Yeah, um, so whenever you go into one of these investigations, I know in the article that I read they said that it felt like the accused already felt like they were going in guilty. Everybody already felt like if they were accused of these kinds of things that it wasn't going to come out in their favor. However, that's not something unique to just the accused. Whenever you're going in accusing someone, you feel like you're going in and you're going to lose. The entire time that I was going through the process, every day I would hear something that was more deterring and like more made me hopeless towards the end. I didn't even expect anything to come out my way at all. So it's not <coughs> raising that proof level, if anything, is going to deter victims and survivors from coming forward even more. And it's already so hard for them to say that something happened. So to say, hey, now you don't just have to go up forward and say that it's happened to you. You also have to prove like beyond a doubt that it did. It's yeah. not fair to survivors, and it makes it much harder. And how long did it take uh, for, for um, your case to kind of work its way through, through the system, through um, the Baylor system? So initially, they give you a certain amount of time, and they have to finish your case within an allotted amount of days. Um, if you reach the allotted amount of days, however, they'll send you an email that says your case has met the allotted days for investigation. However, we will continue to investigate it. So um, I think mine was almost double. So it took about a year, um, maybe a little bit less, for my case to reach completion. Wow, and that's already when there was a deadline of 60 days uh, yeah. at the federal level. Yeah. So that's just interesting to note. Um, I'm going to turn to both of the 
my lawmakers on the panel, um, Senator Watson, Chairman Lozano, uh, there were a number of statewide reforms proposed last sessions. A few passed, some didn't. Um, how much of this issue do you think can really be solved um, on the state level, and how much more work is left for, for the state to do here? Whoever well, wants to take it. Senator, sure, you're the chairman. <laughs> Senator. Well, I think there's, uh, especially now with uh, Secretary DeVos's uh, uh, ruling or uh, decision to rescind that uh, critical uh, protection for uh, the victims um, and colleges, in my opinion, uh, I think now there's more work to be done. Um, I believe that the bar is set lower um, and it should have remained high. I would hope that our universities see it as advisory in nature and they continue to aim high. Um, but next session, I do believe that there's more work to be done. And um, we had a, a very good working relationship with Senator Watson. Um, and I know that uh, I'll continue to work with him on that. The, the, one of the pieces that was left unsolved was, uh, at this point, what happens if a university doesn't want to uh, expedite matters and drag things on for now could potentially be one or two years. Um, uh, or if there, uh, God forbid, be another massive cover-up, what teeth do, do we in the legislature have? Um, and there's currently nothing other than in the appropriations process, but that's, uh, we, we should have something uh, as a penalty uh, to make sure that there is a deterrent for massive cover-ups of that nature. Um, and uh, I think we can get that done uh, next session, considering what, what decision was reached yesterday uh, as a deterrent. Um, I think we need to put that bar back in some way, and I want Texas to shine across the country as, as a state that stands uh, with the victims of sexual assault. Would you, <laughs> would you support a, a statewide law that would require colleges and universities to use to have a, the, use the lower uh, evidentiary standard in, in sexual assault cases? Um, I do not believe they should have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I, I do believe that since it's not a criminal proceeding, that uh, it's a civil in nature. It, it deals with a student violating something in the student handbook, which in this case is severe. This isn't plagiarism. This is potentially uh, scarring someone for the rest of their life. Erring on the side of caution is better than not, so I do. Okay. Yes. So, uh, Senator. Sure. Um, first of all, we did have some success in this session, and I'm real proud of some of the success. I agree with the chairman that there were some gaps that we didn't get. Um, we worked very hard to get them, uh, but it, it didn't, didn't work out exactly the way we, the chairman and I had hoped on some of that. What I worry about, uh, and, and as you listen to all this, what I worry about, uh, hap, hap, which happened yesterday, is that it does lower the bar, as the chairman says, from a policy perspective. And it makes it, it gives a foothold to those who we were having to convince or combat uh, to, to move forward on things. I, I truly believe it will create a foothold where, because some of the, what, what the rhetoric that the secretary has used is some of the very same rhetoric that we heard from some of the groups that were secretly 
opposing us, and then at the last minute kind of became, became more obvious, and some of the members of the legislature. So I do think it has a negative impact in that regard. I'm also greatly worried about the impact it has from, from just purely changing the culture on these college campuses. Uh, we've seen some progress in changing the culture. One of the things that didn't make it that I, I pushed for during this, uh, this legislative session was affirmative consent. And I had to strip that out of a, a bill in order to get the rest of the bill through. Uh, I think that one of the things that we will see during this interim is an effort made on college campuses to have the students and others push for the college campuses as part of the now required sexual assault policy for both public and private schools to, to ask for affirmative consent. I worry that the rhetoric from D.C. Uh, changes the ability to get some of that done. Um, and that's just one example. So, uh, look, part of what happened yesterday is the giving a kind of a legal basis for stopping the progress we're seeing on kind of the old school attitude of boys will be boys and, and, and you know, those kinds of things are going to happen. And it's almost, a, a, you know, she, you know, she um, shouldn't have been dressed that way or she shouldn't have been at that party or things like that. It worries me that it gives some uh, inappropriate credence that sort of attitude, just as we were really making some some good progress. Yeah, and Ms. Le- maybe Ms. Levine, we, you could talk a little bit about. We don't need to get too deep mired in you know all of the details of what happened at Baylor, but maybe it would be instructive to just give some examples from you know just what the attitudes were at, at Baylor University when women were coming forward and trying to and trying to report their sexual assaults just yeah, so that we absolutely. understand that. Uh, yeah. You know, <clears throat> I'm assuming most of you know this, but for those who don't, Baylor is the world's largest Baptist university. So the Christian aspect of Baylor is a factor in, in what I'm going to uh, explain. When, when women would come forward to judicial affairs or to coaches or to um, administrators or professors at Baylor, in many cases, and report their sexual assault, even the police chief, um, they, there would be a, a, a sort of pattern of victim blaming. Um, there'd be a lot of, well, you know, you shouldn't have been at his house at, at that late at night, you know, or, you know, you were you were drinking. Um, you know there was a lot. Of, there were a lot of women who complained that they would not even go to report their sexual assault because at Baylor you can get you could get expelled for drinking. And so they knew if they came forward to report an assault and they said they were drunk when they were assaulted that they'd probably get in trouble for drinking, but that nothing would be done with their sexual assault. Um, they were uh, there. There were several people who told us that there were women who. Um, they would go to parties off campus and they'd be drinking and they'd get to a point where they were, you know, were kind of intoxicated. They wouldn't go back to their dorm because they were afraid of getting busted by the campus police. They would stay at the party, creating this incredibly ripe situation for being assaulted. Um, that, that was a huge factor. It was just the, the, the fear of getting in trouble and then also the, the fear of no one believing them. Um, and, and there was a unique thing happening also with the coaches. Um, 
which we talk more about in the book, there, there was an attitude of, um, you know, they would go and, and coaches would find out about what happened, and then the players would be like, oh, you know, that girl's had sex with 10 guys on this team, you know, 40 times, and, and you know, she was into this kind of thing. That was the sort of mentality that was going on there when women would try to, to come forward and say, look, something, something happened to me. I was assaulted, and I, like, I'm traumatized, and the response they would get would be like, well, you know, you kind of maybe put yourself in, you know, or, or, you know, how can you say that something happened to you when you, you had a relationship with this guy? You know, for some reason, there was a mentality that, that gave them permission to do this. And, and I mean, I, you know, there, that was present at Baylor. I think some of that also is obviously present at pretty much any college campus in the country. Yeah, and Senator Watson, you had a bill that um, addressed uh, giving amnesty yeah. to Vic. What what happened to that bill? That passed. So that uh, passed. Yeah. So so we had two that are kind of related to yeah. the answer. And by the way, in the book, Paula does a. Uh, I was telling her as we're coming in, she she does a very good job of reporting in the book. I I, I was pleased to read the book, um, but in part because maybe maybe I liked it so much because it confirmed what I thought might be going on, um, and and so one of the bills that we filed was to allow for amnesty for someone that is reporting either as a victim or a witness of a sexual assault. Our goal here was to support and empower uh, survivors. And so if, if you violate, so underage drinking is a good example of that. If the student conduct code says you can't be drinking underage or drinking at all, or you shouldn't be in a dorm room that you're not supposed to be in because that's also a violation. If, if it's ancillary to the sexual assault, then the school has to give amnesty on that. Uh, in addition to that, we amended the penal code because what we also didn't want to have is, okay, well, they, can, they, may not be able to get, they may not get in trouble at school because of the amnesty, but they can still be prosecuted for admitting to a minor in possession or admitting to underage drinking. So we, am, we amended the penal code so that they can't be prosecuted. They're, it's a defense um, under those circumstances as well. So that is an area where I think we made significant progress. Mm-hmm. And Ms. Smith, you zeroed in on a particular policy change that colleges and universities could make to improve their handling of sexual assault cases in your testimony uh, this spring, and that would be to require student transcripts to have notice of disciplinary proceedings against a student. Um, In your situation, Baylor found your assailant responsible, but by the time they did, he had already transferred to another school. Um, Talk to us some about why you feel like this is a policy schools should adopt if they're serious about tackling the issue of sexual assault. Yeah, well, first and foremost, because repeat offenders happen all the time. It's very common for somebody to assault not just one, but multiple people. So he was found guilty at my school. He did it. He's at this another school now that has no idea that this ever happened. So the next time a girl goes forward to claim it, it's her word against his again, and it's a whole new fresh slate for him. And he could be found innocent this time, even though he really did it, because that happens all the time. And it's not fair that she has to go against his word whenever his word has already been proved to mean nothing. Um, On top of that, it's not fair because he was supposed to receive multiple semester suspension. Now he's continuing his education free from any sort of 
repercussions. And if you do something wrong and you're found guilty and there's a punishment that comes with it, you should have to serve your punishment. Uh, Dr. Mercer, you are an expert on this issue in particular of, of, dis, of disciplinary dismissals and student transcripts. You examined it in your dissertation, um, and you've spent years warning universities and colleges about the possibility of, of students transferring to avoid disciplinary proceedings. Um, we know that the UT system does have a policy that, that um, includes a notice of a disciplinary case on the transcript, but... Uh, many other schools have been reluctant to do the same. Can you explain why that is, and do you sure. see that changing? Sure. First off, it grieves me to hear about what happened to her um, when uh, the institution, when Baylor failed to uh, protect you or protect other women by making sure that other people knew. So that's exactly how I got involved in this research. Um, You mentioned it, Chairman Lozano said it very well. Uh, when there is a policy violation, that's when the institution gets involved, our processes take place, and somebody is found in violation of the policy or not. If that policy violation is serious enough, and they're invited to leave, as I call it, or suspended or expelled, as far as I'm concerned, that impacts their record at the institution. They no longer can attend, and um, many institutions agree that it should be noted on the transcript. It may not say sexual assault, but it will say something so that an institution, upon receiving that transcript, then understands that they're not in good, sta good standing with the other institution, and as a result, they can ask questions. They can make inquiries about it. And so that's something I have been fighting for, and we've had some success. We do it in the UT system. But you ask a good question because in some ways I can give you some of the reasons why institutions don't want to do that, but I don't really find them particularly valid. <laughs> but, uh, they do. Uh, they, they will say this should not follow a person for their entire life, this policy violation. And remember, these can be other kinds of policy violations too, academic conduct, that sort of thing. But most campuses, and what uh, Representative Turner had in a bill that was before the legislature that didn't proceed, was that, and what we have in the UT system, is that if you are suspended, and suspended usually means for a period of time or until you... Uh, satisfy certain conditions. It's, it's, it's limited in nature. But if you're suspended from an institution, the notation disciplinary suspension is on your transcript, and if you meet all those criteria, then you can ask the institution to take it off, and they will. And so it doesn't follow them forever. It follows them for the time, and it's on the transcript for the time that that, that uh, sanction is assigned. Uh, there are campuses who just don't think that that should follow a student, and I just disagree for that reason and other kinds of reasons. Frankly, if, even if you cheated, even if you stole a book from the library, as a receiving institution, and, uh, now, I'm not sure stealing a book from the library would get you suspended. <laughs> who knows? But anyway, um, uh, the a receiving institution ought to know, ought to know that you are no longer eligible to go to the other institution. And then in the case of expulsions, it is on there. 
forever. Should there be a distinction, and I don't know exactly how to work around this because um, in Ms. Smith's case, it was um, an ongoing proceeding. It yes. hadn't yet, he, there hadn't yet been a conclusion, and so I could see some people on the other side say, well, like, there has been an accusation made or, like, there's some type of violation that's under investigation, but mm-hmm. we don't, there hasn't been a conclusion about what's, fa- how, how do you kind of balance protecting someone who is a, who's accused of something um, and also, you know, making sure they're not just transferring sure. to avoid their, their punishment? And that's tricky. Yeah. The question you ask is a very fundamental one because you do not want to apply sanctions to somebody who's not had his or her appropriate due process and all. You absolutely do not. What we do and what many institutions do is that you've uh, notified the person and the hearing process is going on. It doesn't usually take a year. (laughs) Um, Then if the a person who's accused withdraws or transfers or leaves, you proceed with the process. You continue, you have the hearings. If he or she chooses not to participate, that's their choice. But you continue, you have evidence, you do it all, and you make a ruling, and that ruling stands. That ruling stands. Because we cannot have people bowing out of an institution to avoid the sanctions which should be applied. I'll add one other thing because I think it's important, and that is, so say um, they leave in the middle of the process and they're trying to transfer before the process finishes, okay, Mm -hmm. even if you conclude it without them. Most, our institutions, most institutions, while they won't note it on the transcript yet because it hasn't been, but they'll hold the transcript. You can't access that transcript until the process is completed. And that's fair to people who are accused. That's fair to people on both sides of it. You finish the process and you come to a conclusion. If the process is not finished, you hold the transcript up so that that student doesn't skate. Yeah. And Ms. Levine, how does, Ms. Levine, how does this, how has this played out um, with colleges' athletic programs? Because we've seen, um, you know, student athletes who have, who have had violations and even, you know, sometimes the coaches even know about this and they have been brought into athletic program, you know, just kind of shifted over to athletic programs at other schools. And I know that's an area that Baylor has worked some to correct, um, but what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, one of the things that <clears throat> we saw so often was, and you still see this to some degree, that you've got players who are not only under investigation by the university for sexual assault, they might be under indictment in a criminal process, yet while they're under indictment, another college will let them go and play for them. <laughs> and and it's, it's incredible. You are seeing some of that change. There, you know, there are, like with the, the SEC, um, you know, has a rule about you can't, you can't transfer into another program. If you, I can't remember if it's actually, if you've been can found, I think it's found responsible for an act of sexual violence. Um, you are seeing other conferences embrace this. You're seeing individual schools, uh, Indiana University is an example, have policies like this. There has been pressure on the NCAA to make this, uh, make this universal, that you, you should not be allowed to transfer to another university and be an active 
participant or be eligible. You should not have your eligibility if you are um, found responsible for, you know, however they defined it, right? So there's a lot of pressure for, for that to be the case. Right now it's very piecemeal, but um, there, there are more schools, more conferences. Like this idea is, is gaining ground because there's been so much criticism of um, player. You know, there's, I, there's one case that we're looking at right now where there is a woman who is saying that the university was trying to get her to close out her Title IX case so that the accused could transfer to another school and play football. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that, should not be, that should not be the university. I mean, that, that is uh, the whole sweeping it under the rug. I mean, just shoving them off to some other campus it should never be the answer. Yeah. Um, and and, and the, other, the other side of it, and one thing that Baylor now is doing is on the receiving end, background checking some of these transfers mm -hmm. and, and doing some of that with the incoming recruits as well. So even while there's not a policy in place, I would hope that athletic programs um, adopt some of what Baylor's doing and, and put more emphasis on screening the recruits that, and screening the transfers and the recruits that they're bringing into the program and having some standards like that. Mm -hmm. Morgan, I want to say yeah, one please. other thing about the transcript issue that I think is important. When, you, when we don't have a policy across the country of doing this, when an institution gets a transcript, they don't know if this student is in good standing or if this institution's practice is to do it. So it, they, you don't know. The, the lack of a standard practice, I think, is really dangerous from that perspective because you don't know that institution's practice when you receive the transcript. So I was thinking about it related to these. Um, a coach, the background check you may have to do because you're not going to know. Yeah. And this, uh, this bill, um, Chairman Lozano, it made it out of your committee, but it did not um, pass this session. Um, what, do, what were some of the obstacles, and do you think that that's going to change next session? I think it will. Um, usually when uh, there's a, a massive policy issue like this, it, it might be difficult to pass the omnibus bill on the first try. Um, this next session will try, again, especially on, on the notation on the transcripts. I applaud the University of Texas for doing that already. Uh, they are a role model. Other universities should follow them. Um, the study they did on their own, it was the most comprehensive survey on sex assault in the nation, from what I've heard from many people. They asked questions that really went into depth. For the longest time, uh, the general population believed that sexual assault was rape. There are far more things that are rape, that are sexual assault that aren't rape. Um, and so consequently, in other studies, when someone is asked, have you ever been sexually assaulted, they thought, have I ever been raped? Have I ever been uh, forcefully groped? Or they would always put no. And so we still have a very high rate of unreported sexual assaults. The, this study was key to getting us to understand, uh, almost in a psychological way, uh, what we can do to, to increase reporting. Um, so I do believe that next session, uh, the transcripts uh, bill uh, that will move uh, further along. I, I believe it will become law next session. Um, 
And there are other parts that I think will now, especially in, in light of Secretary DeVos's uh, uh, ruling, um, I, I think that it's going to spur us into more action to ensure that parents feel safe sending their kids to college nationwide, but specifically for us, that they choose Texas over other states because we have acted when they have not. And um, I think this is going to be my last question before I open it up to the audience. So um, begin thinking if you are not already about any questions you want to ask our panelists. But um, I wanted to ask uh, Ms. Smith, what are you... What will you be looking at, at at Baylor, and perhaps this can be applied to other colleges and universities as well, just to evaluate whether or not they have improved how they handle sexual assault cases? Um, I mean, definitely the transcripts thing. Definitely more education on what constitutes, like, what's worthy of a Title IX report, because I know so many people who, like you said, they don't understand what the wide spectrum of sexual assault encompasses. And it's heartbreaking to hear people tell me stories of things that have happened to them, and they're like, oh, no, but that doesn't count. That's not bad enough. I can't go say anything because it wasn't X, Y, Z, and that's not fair. Um, So education to their students about that, the transcript thing. Also, it would be really great if consent could be something that schools talk about, even on the first week, welcome week, syllabus, orientation weeks, because we get those talks all the time about be safe. These are how these are ways to be safe. These are ways to avoid problem situations. Hey, now let's add consent onto that. Um, also, changing of the community and the culture, and that's one of the things that I love about Baylor. You've seen a huge switch in the way that students react to things, and there is a lot of support. Maybe it's just from where I stand, but I see students really coming together to that's want great. to make a difference, and that's great. Um, all right. Do we have questions there? Microphones. Do we have questions? <laughs> <laughs> two different spots here. Um, and if you'd like, just uh, say your name and who your question is for, um, if it's for a specific person. Um, we'll start right here. Okay. Uh, my name's Sheridan Crenshaw. Um, this question is just, I guess, in general, because um, it has to do with kind of everything. Um, beyond the idea of speed and attention to especially athlete-involved sexual assault cases after the fact, um, how can we, um, in response to these cases, work to prevent the culture or to change the culture within athletics and even just in general that someone is entitled to use another human being's body? Uh, I will sort of piggyback off of some of what you were saying, um, and, and this should speak to athletes and to students in general. We spend so much time talking to women about don't do this, don't do this, make sure you got a buddy. You know what? Women are not the ones raping (laughs) people. We need to spend more time talking to the men on these campuses. Don't rape women. It is their responsibility. The education department and Betsy DeVos wants to spend more time talking about due process, and I don't, I don't, due process is in a very, obviously, an integral part of getting it right. And if there's going to be more attention paid toward the accused, then there needs to be more attention paid to them on both sides of this, right. on the receiving end of it and on the prevention end. So I think, great, equality. Let's definitely, both sides need to be treated fairly. 
both sides need to be educated equally on this issue. And so when we talk about, and especially with student athletes, because there is a disproportionate number of cases involving student athletes, but on the flip side, student athletes can be the role models on campus. If you can get the football players to embrace this concept, if you can get them to start talking about consent, people look up to them. People look up to the athletes on the campus. So they need to be educated and they need to be the ones to go out there and sort of spread to everybody else, hey, we need to, you know, this consent is cool, and they also need to get into the uh, aspect of bystander intervention. If they see something happening, they need to say, hey, man, like, that's not cool. Like, you, you need to stop that. They need to be one standing in the door saying, no, I'm not going to let this happen. All right. That's a, can, can I oh, add sure. to that? Yeah. Because that's a, that's a great answer. And, and part of the reason I feel that way is I, I had a bill in this session that would have required that as part of the sexual assault policy on the college campuses that, and, and by the way, the policy had to be communicated. They had to have a mechanism for communicating. The chairman uh, and I worked on this so that, so that those kinds of things would be communicated. And it specifically had in it that the sexual assault policy had to have a requirement of affirmative consent. In other words, something as simple as the idea that a, a, a woman is entitled to privacy unless she tells you something different and not... And, 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 and the right to privacy or the right to make a decision about sexual intimacy is not predicated on having to first object. Uh, and and it, was, it was the hardest discussion of any of my bills because, uh, I'm not sure of all the because, but they pushed back so hard on that um, and, and we've got to change the culture, not just on the college campuses, but the policymakers aren't there yet. And, and it's going, so we've got a ways to go in that regard. One of the things that I hope is I hope that even without the creation of policy, now that all college campuses, public and private, are required to have a sexual assault policy, that what you see is a real push, an organic push at the college level to get as part of that sexual assault policy the consent requirements that, that, that ought to be what, what we deal with every day. And Senator, just to follow up, I mean, are you, are you willing to name names? I mean, who was pushing back so hard against that affirmative consent? <laughs> sure. Um, the bill had to go through the State Affairs Committee, and the, the chairwoman of the State Affairs Committee was not for this. Um, there were a number of uh, members of the committee uh, Senator Hughes had a lot of questions about um, this. I could just, I, frankly, I could probably go around the yeah. table um, okay. and, and do that. It was, I don't want to say in their defense, but it was the first time it was talked about. Um, so uh, to some degree, it was the first time somebody had stood up on the Senate floor and said, let's talk about affirmative consent and what it means. And some people didn't really some people wanted to hear, how, how, what's that really mean? And the example I would give real quickly is, um, in my house, I have a right to privacy. You don't just get to come into my house unless I affirmatively say you get to come into my house. And we, we, we just presume that, that, that that's the, the situation. And I could say, you get to stay, you can stay on my front porch. Okay, well, I'll let you come in my, into my, my front room, but that doesn't mean you have more consent than just to be in the front room. And 
I can withdraw that consent and ask you to leave. That's the way we deal with our our houses. Why is it we have a different presumption when it comes to sexual intimacy? Um, So my hope is my hope is that some of the folks that push back pretty hard on me, um, this was the first time. Let's let's educate. Go get some education. All right, uh, I'll go back and forth. So I'll do uh, the top mic next. <laughs> so my name is Zoe Klein, and I don't know how much you know about this topic. This is for all of you. Um, but sexual assault is rarer on high school campuses and middle school campuses than college campuses, but it does happen. So my question is, what's your opinion on how middle school and high school campuses currently handle sexual assault, and what's your opinion on how they should handle it? I don't know enough. I don't know enough. I think you're, yeah, you're right that, you know, it's not something that a lot of people know about, um, but, I, but here's what I will say about it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not that I know much about that. But one of the things that Paula points out very well in her book, and some of us that have had long relationships with Baylor suspected, is that one of the issues we had, that you had at Baylor was that because, and for whatever reason, um, they just wanted to assume that sex really doesn't happen on college campuses or just off campus. And therefore, you can't get into, as she points this out very well in the book, you couldn't really get into the discussion of what is consent because that's recognizing that there might be consent to sex. Um, Man, I wish we could talk about things like this in middle school and high school where you had real sex education. And I would, I, would, I would like to add to that, Zoe, is that um, as, as someone who played some football in high school, I was by no means a, a superstar. I was, in fact, the kicker. So my, <laughs> <laughs> They always used my helmet for picture day. Uh, uh, the athlete uh, disproportionate uh, sexual assault issue, that begins at lower levels in education. It's... It's the ability to get away with things because you're a superstar so athlete. That starts in high school, perhaps even in junior even high, for, for all we know. Yeah. And so breaking that culture needs to start sooner. Um, but I am going to research to see exactly what TEA is doing right now, school districts, what they're doing right now, and see what kind of parallel we can do next session. That's a good idea. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Josephine. I'm a junior here at UT. I'm with the Daily Texan. Uh, going off the idea of talking to men, even here, um, when I talk to my friends about it, my guy friends, their first response is very defensive. It's like, oh, well, what if I get accused? Like, what happens? Like, this isn't right. I have so many rights. Um, and, and it's like they just don't get it. So my question for the gentleman on this panel is, huh. what made you guys get it? Was it stories <laughs> from women in your life? Was it the numbers that you saw coming out? What made, you, what made it click for you? Um, I, it's probably started with Billy Faye Watson, my mama. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I'm, I'm trying to think of what the second step was. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, 
and Liz Watson. That's right, my wife, um, <laughs> who I started dating. Who I started dating when I was fourteen. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, um, yeah, Liz and I started dating when I was 14. So that tells you something there too. The, uh, the, um, but also Don Watson, you know, my, my, my father, uh, we had real discussions about these kinds of things. And, um, and when things would happen that other people were doing wrong, it was pointed out that's wrong. Uh, but, but let's be fair. Not everybody has a Billy Faye Watson, Don Watson, and, and starts dating some, their, their, their 38-year wife at, <coughs> at age 14, right? Um, that is where we need to be doing, we, we need to be doing better in, in the, at the college level and at middle school and high school level where we're helping some folks be able to, to, to see these things. Um, and, and then here's the other thing I'll say about that because you asked about, about looking at numbers and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm horrified by the numbers. Um, and in a position to do something about it, even if I don't pass all the legislation I file, uh, Chairman Lozano and I spent a lot of hours on bills that didn't pass, but I don't grade our paper simply on whether or not the bill passed. The fact that we got the discussion started in some of these areas so that we can come back makes a difference. So, yeah, sure, you get elected to do a job, um, I'm happy to try to use it, use that, use that job. I would have to agree with, with the senator. I, I grew up in a home with no brothers and five sisters. Oh, oh. <laughs> That's right. Um, and there so I, I do believe it, it, there is a psychological component uh, when the child is being molded. Uh, the authority figure in their household has a, a huge influence. The teachers in their school have a huge influence. And um, if you... Uh, if there are surveys out there, I wouldn't doubt it if many of those that were offenders, that were sexually assaulting women, that they were in homes of domestic violence when they were young, and so, uh, or, or homes of uh, drug abuse, drug addiction. And so there's a variety of psychological issues um, that I think we can also tackle. We would talk to about, uh, about earlier, Senator and I, about a, a conference he was at on, on mental illness that's a, another huge component of our uh, public policy arena that we need to address as well, mental illness. Hi, my name's Emily. I'm from Denton, Texas, but I go to the University of Oklahoma. Um, sorry, I know I shouldn't say this on this campus, but <laughs> um, I, can, I can only speak for my school. I can't speak for other universities, but I know that my school offers a lot of resources. We have a Title IX office. We have counseling centers. We have um, advocacy helplines, but just because we have them doesn't mean they're helpful. I know that a lot of students who go to them for help, they get bounced around. The Title IX office sends them to another place, and then they get sent to another place, and they don't get the help that they need. So what can universities do? What can university leaders and students do to fix that problem? Um, I'll bounce in on that because it's so true. I am um, at Baylor. I know that I have plenty of friends who aren't religious, regardless that it's a religious institution. And our counseling center, everybody who goes to Baylor, if you work there, you're also religious. And so I've had a lot of friends be hesitant to go forward because they didn't want that kind of counseling and they didn't want like Christ in their counseling. And um, so I think what needs to happen is this the university needs to listen to the students and the students' needs, and they need to kind of just get their stuff together because if there's 
a path that always happens every time, then there's not going to be a need to bounce students from one place to another because you don't know where to send them or what, where they need to go. So one thing that my school, a lot of the students want to do is have a panel of survivors go in and speak with student government, with leaders on campus, with faculty, just so that everybody knows, like, hey, you've never been in this situation. I have. Here's what's wrong with it. So I think they need to just go straight directly to the source to see better ways to fix it. Next question. My name's Janice Henderson, and I taught at Texas Tech. Um, and then I've also been in the Austin area, and I worked at a crisis center, Williamson County Crisis Center. And I will tell you that there are some programs that go into high schools, middle schools, and elementary schools through the state agency, TASA. Um, mm -hmm. And we do talk to the, have those conversations. Uh, I'm a prevention educator, and so my question sort of started getting answered here at the end, but I thought I perhaps would give you a chance because I do know that a lot of the universities are introducing those prevention programs where we're talking about things like what is consent and what isn't consent and what is this all. Would you like to expand on what UT specifically is doing, especially since they do seem to be taking a lead in this as far as like prevention, just educating programs? Um, well, you've got to be out front and talking to people before they're in crisis. That's what Exactly. That's, that's my point is the, the precursor to it. Um, so we don't even need the crisis. I'll give you an example of one. Um, there's a program that's being uh, really promulgated this year here at Austin addressing men. Right. Um, Chris is in the audience. He'll remember the name of it. But, um, masculine UT. Masculine UT. Thank you. Um, but you've got to target, what we've learned from the research is that you're going to have to target certain groups. So uh, a lot of our campuses are sitting down with student athletes as a, as, as a group, <clears throat> sitting down with uh, uh, the Greek system. So, uh, but these kinds of efforts are, are targeting men, which was pointed out as, as something that's needed. I think is the way you've got to do it. You have to kind of divide and conquer. Almost every campus has a program for beginning students, um, but we've learned that you're so inundated there at the beginning that you can't just rely on that as the time you talk about these issues. You've got to talk about it then. Then in their housing groups, they need to talk about it. Then in whatever organizations you go to, you need to talk about it, perhaps with victims or others. That's what we're trying to do to, uh, because if you say, we're going to have a program and we're going to talk about sexual assault, y'all come. <laughs> I promise you, um, the ones who need to come are not going to be there. So you have to go out to them and target specific groups is one of the things we're doing. And that does underscore what we know from prevention education is you can't do it one time. It and has I want to happen over and over. Uh, every one of our pro, uh, campuses, uh, our academic campuses, has a bystander intervention program. Every one of them, uh, led by uh, UT Austin. And that's another good prevention mechanism is to create an atmosphere where we're responsible for each other as college students. And I think that has uh, been very effective. Okay, I think, unfortunately, this might need to be our last question. Okay. My name is Mitchell Johnson. I am a student here at UT. Um, I think a lot of our national conversation about sexual assault has focused on sexual assault on university campuses. 
Um, but not everyone in America goes to college. Um, and so I'm curious just, you know, for, for anybody on the panel, um, is anybody looking at statistics or studying sexual assault outside of university campuses? Um, and, and what do we do about that? Um, so yeah. Well, the, the University of Texas survey showed I'll, I'll let Dr. Mercer, because it was an incredible study. Go ahead. But the Institute on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, who did the study that was us, also does the statewide prevalence study. So they do a study, uh, as Chairman's saying. Uh, for, they did ours, but they do a statewide. So that is online, and you can find it too. <clears throat> Interestingly, and not surprisingly, the statistics are not that different. Um, outside an institution, and if anything, an institution might be a little bit safer in some areas. But, in, but we've talked about sexual assault today, but domestic violence and stalking and some of the other um, areas protected by Title IX are serious, serious issues in this state. I think uh, the chairman was right when he talks about if we would tackle the, institute, uh, the issue of uh, domestic violence in a more robust way, we may not end up with some of the problems that we have. Just my opinion. All right. Well, thank you all so much for thank you. Thank you. Good job. Good job. Um, there are a bunch of food trailers on the um, main lawn uh, for lunch. I'm supposed to tell you guys that. <laughs>